Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a special episode of France Elects, a world review podcast series on the French election from The New Statesman. I'm Ida Vok, Europe correspondent at The New Statesman, and I'm very pleased to welcome listeners to this special episode of France Elects, produced in partnership with the Friedrich Ebert Foundation or the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung, or FES as it is known in German. As French voters prepare to choose between Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen in the second round of voting for president, on the 24th of April. This week, we're taking a deep dive into the roots of right-wing populism across Europe and how progressives can counter the threats of right-wing populist politics. We should definitely not try to imitate right-wing populists by becoming a right-wing populist. So they have ownership of that issue, and so they get the votes, and, and you don't. I'll be joined by Daphne Halikopoulou, an academic at the University of Reading and the co-author of the FES report, Understanding Right-Wing Populism and What to Do About It, and Marta Lorimer, a fellow in European politics at the LSE European Institute. As expected, the far-right leader Marine Le Pen will again face Emmanuel Macron in the second round of voting for president on Sunday. Le Pen who before the first round was polling within the margin of error for victory, has brought her far-right Rassemblement National Party closer to power than at any point in history. In this first round, the French people have clearly chosen to arbitrate between two opposing visions of the future, either division, injustice and disorder, imposed by Emmanuel Macron to benefit the few, or unity of the French people around social justice and protecting, guaranteed by a fraternal understanding of the millenarian idea of nation and people. But Le Pen is only one of a host of far-right leaders across Europe, from Spain to Hungary, enjoying some of their best electoral results in recent history. Here's Hungary's Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, Europe's most successful right-wing populist, celebrating a crushing re-election victory earlier this month. We have scored a victory so big that it can be seen from the moon, but also from Brussels. The whole world has seen tonight in Budapest that Christian democratic politics, conservative civic politics and patriotic politics have won. We are telling Europe that this is not the past, this is the future. This will be our common European future. The FES's report puts right-wing populist success across Europe into context. 
showing the commonalities between different movements, which nonetheless have succeeded in gaining ground in a swathe of European countries, whether in terms of their electoral performance, access to government, or ability to influence the policy agenda. Win or lose, Lupin is certain to lead the French far-right to its best-ever result in the national election. And right-wing populism across Europe is here to stay. To discuss this question, I'm delighted to be joined by Daphne Halikopoulou and Marta Laura. Daphne, Lupin is the most recent example of a right-wing populist coming close to winning power in Europe. But as your report sets out, she's far from the only one. Can you describe the movements you studied and talk a little bit about the commonalities across political traditions and countries that you found? Yeah, absolutely. So indeed, we looked at 17 European countries in our report. And I just want to say this is not by any means an an exhaustive list. It's just we covered 17 countries and that covers quite a lot of um, right-wing populist parties that have some differences, but also important commonalities in what I term posing nationalist solutions to all socioeconomic problems. So while they might differ to an extent in terms of say their extremism or their populism, they actually all put nationalism above all else in their in their programmatic agenda. So to give you an example, if they there is an issue with the health service, they say, okay, let's exclude immigrants. If there is an issue with schooling, okay, let's exclude immigrants. So it's a nationalist solution to all socioeconomic problems. And they link that, as I said, first into clearly nationalism or nativism. So they make a, a distinction between the in-group and the out-group. And they say that we always must prioritize, obviously, the in-group at the expense of the out-group. And then second, they're all to a degree populist in that they also make this this distinction or dichotomy between the people and the good people, us, the good people versus them, the elites, and also suggest that obviously we need to prioritize the people over the corrupt elites. And obviously uh, any legitimate decision made in society is made from below, right, in the interests of the people. So we looked at a range of parties from Western Europe, Southern Europe, Scandinavia, Eastern Europe, and the Baltics. And these parties also have certain differences. So I think first in terms of their extremism, some are what I would call extreme parties like the Greek Golden Dawn, which is now in in prison for murder, grievous bodily harm, etc. Versus the more, if you like, moderate or what we call radical variants, such as Marine Le Pen, for example, or the AFD in Germany, um, that still function within the democratic system. Other differences include their positions on the economy. For example, some support a free market economy, whereas others support a more statist economy. And also finally, what I call the difference between ethnic and civic nationalism. So some of these parties focus more on the cultural dimension of the outgroup. Then they define the outgroup in terms of criteria that, that, that one is born with, descriptive criteria, such as race or, or, or genealogy, right? Whereas the civic ones define the in-group and the outgroup in terms of ideological criteria or institutional criteria. Different race versus uh, liberal democratic values. And what we do see is that the majority of these parties that are successful across Europe are those that, that emphasize more the civic as opposed to the ethnic narratives. One of the aspects I found interesting in the report was the idea that you highlight of systemic entrenchment, which is the, you define it as the gradual ability of niche parties to permeate mainstream ground. And you say that most right-wing populist parties in Western European countries 
began as niche actors on the fringes of the political system and they increased their support beyond their sort of core voter base by becoming embedded in the system as coalition partners or credible opposition parties. And obviously in the context of France, this is very salient because Lupin is very much now seen, she's on the cusp of power. She is very much seen as a credible alternative to the mainstream parties which which have governed France for the past decades. But she, the party that the political tradition that she comes from, the Front National, her father's party, was the definition of a fringe party and she has brought it to the cusp of power. Marta, how do you understand this phenomenon and is it important to the, the success that we've seen right-wing populist parties enjoy across Europe? Yeah, I think Marie Le Pen has spent basically the last 10 years at the helm of her party trying to persuade French voters that she is the leader of a party of government. So she very much speaks of the transition from her father's party to this party as a transition from a party of opposition to a party of government. And she's really been trying to work on this first by, as she calls it, this, this de-demonization. So trying to make the national rallies ideas sound broadly acceptable. And so she's backtracked on several of the controversial commitments of the party. She got rid of some of its more radical members, uh, including her own father. She's, especially in this election, really tried to build credibility by, for example, presenting costed programs and having press releases to present different parts of her own program to show that she takes this idea of governing very seriously. And to some extent, this entire process has worked for her. So she has improved hugely on uh, the party's previous scores. We've seen it. This is the second time that she is in the second round of the presidential election. But she still faces a bit of a credibility issue in the sense that the national rally is present in uh, local government and in the European Parliament. But it still struggles to impose itself at the national level in the, in the National Assembly. So she still has limited experience of power, which is something that is becoming particularly obvious in the in between the two rounds of the presidential election, where Macron is really insisting on the fact that Le Pen does not have direct experience of government. She does not have a party with a huge experience of government or with the kind of people that have that experience and that could join it. So it has been this this entire process has been successful, but she still has a way to go. And I am not 100 percent sure that as national rally, she can actually get there. The populist right was also fragmented with the presence of Zamor. And initially there was some um, thinking or speculation that, wow, this is going to really split the vote. But yet, yet it actually had uh, perhaps a, a beneficial effect for Le Pen because what it did is that it, it, in a way, took the more core cultural voters, the core that we talked about, and then made her look, I think, even more moderate, even more legitimate, allowing her to capture more of that periphery. So I think that the, the, the party competition dynamics are also interesting if you look at how the populist right was also divided and what effect that had. This uh, leads on quite nicely to the to the question of the strategies of success which which right wing populist parties have employed across Europe, and that's not only systemic entrenchment. Daphne, you also identify other strategies of success. I was wondering if you could talk about those and how they function 
and and more broadly beyond the question of systemic entrenchment, which you highlight in Western Europe, but also the others which have been uh, more successful in other parts of Europe. Yeah, let me start by expanding a little bit on what Marta said by just just explaining what I mean by by this process of systemic entrenchment across Europe and. I think it is, in fact, one of the defining features of right-wing populism or far-right populism that separates this wave from or distinguishes this wave from the previous wave. So what we are seeing in one way or another is a breakdown of the so-called cordon sanitaire, right? And we're seeing that everywhere in Europe. It, because the votes themselves, if, if you look at, and in the report, we have a very long term, a couple of decades at least, of electoral support. And you'll see that very often some of these parties have, they have ebbs and tides, they go up and they go down a bit. So some of the percentages are debatable. Take the Golden Dawn in Greece, they got 7%. You can ask me, is that a lot or a little? What does it mean if a party gets 7%? So I think in terms of votes alone, we can discuss whether there is, what success means and whether there is success. But where we really do see a difference is in two other things that are related to systemic entrenchment. The first being that a lot of these parties are now included in government. So we've seen it, we saw it in Italy, we see it in Norway, we've seen it in Denmark, in, in Austria. In so many countries, you see these parties are either coalition governments or supporting minority governments. And you see it in this so-called systemic entrenchment, where basically, essentially, the, the ball is in the court, right? So they play the game with, in their own arena with their own terms. So other parties are saying, in order to defeat the populist radical, we need to become the populist radical. We should adopt populist rhetoric. We should perhaps become stricter on immigration. And, and this is where really this cordon sanitaire is breaking. Parties are more willing to, to play along with a right-wing populist. They're more willing to enter coalitions with them and they're more willing to take on their policy prescriptions, which I think is the biggest concern. And obviously then that leads me to answer your question, which is how have they managed to do that. And I think what, what we do in the report is we propose a sort of twofold answer for that, which is basically what we say is that there are two types, broadly speaking, of potential voters for these parties, right? The core voters, those who are principled voters, they espouse the right-wing populist agenda completely. They have some cultural concerns. They fear about the erosion of their cultural identity, etc. But then that is very small percentage of the population, right? So in order to extend your voter base, and as you say, go from fringe to more entrenched, more mainstream, you need to capture what we call peripheral voters, those who don't necessarily endorse every aspect of the right-wing populist agenda, but are, have economic concerns that are not addressed by other parties, or they're angry at the establishment, or they have uh, trust issues, etc. So really what these parties have done is to put forward an agenda that first uses civic as opposed to clearly ethnic nationalism, and that makes them more palatable because it sheds the stigma of fascism. Marta very nicely explained how Marine Le Pen has uh, tried to eliminate some extremist elements from her party, has separated herself from the uh, the, the agenda that her, her father's Front National had. So this type of narrative that focuses on the ideological rather than the biological criteria of national belonging makes these parties more palatable and more attractive to broader voter groups. And then secondly, they also focus quite a lot on economic concerns. So we do have this discussion as, is it culture or is it economy? But if you look at the party narratives, if you look at their positions, 
they actually emphasize a lot of them, even those who support the free market, they still emphasize economic concerns and they still propose some kind of welfare chauvinist agenda. So they, in that way, they can capture both the core and the peripheral voters. And I think that's quite, quite an important reason why they've managed to extend support beyond their secure voter base. And I think, and Martin can add here, if we look at France, obviously the most likely voter for the national rally is, is a male rural dweller that has immigration concerns, but that's not by any means the only type of voter. They also get support from younger people, from women, from what we would call unlikely voter groups. And I think that is where their success can be, how their success can be understood. I find that really interesting, this question of moving away from ethnic nationalism towards civic nationalism and in doing so broadening their appeal. I was in Marseille this weekend because Macron, who's in the second round, was giving a speech and the speech was primarily about, about green issues, about environmental issues, but loads and loads of people in the audience, which I spoke to, obviously loads of people in the audience were, were concerned by one specific pledge. Le Pen had made, which was to, which is to ban the veil, the Islamic veil in public places. And obviously Marseille is a city which has been shaped very heavily by immigration, including from Muslim North Africa. And I, I found this, the, the salience of that issue in this particular place quite interesting. And I wonder whether it's a reminder for this supposedly civic nationalism tipping over into something approaching ethnic nationalism and maybe that reminds voters of the roots of these parties a bit more than uh, than if these policies hadn't been proposed. Do you have any thoughts on that, Marta? Yes, I think that what's interesting in to look at in this case is how is the question of the veil being framed by these parties? So following up on what Daphne said, it's a lot of this is how you present your opposition to something that might look like discrimination based on ethnic grounds, but instead you justify it as saying, no, it's about protecting civic values. So in other words, it's saying that we want to make it illegal for women to wear the veil because this is a symbol of the subjugation of women. So it's basically justifying a policy in the name of civic values such as the defense of the rights of women or saying that Islam is a religion that doesn't, that doesn't really respect women. So what's the entire idea is to try and frame policies that if framed in an ethnically exclusionary fashion would sound completely unacceptable in a way that makes them sound like it's really about defending our own civilization and our own values and not our ethnic group, but really what, say, French secularism is all about. This is where Le Pen's attempts to outlaw the veil basically come from. She's trying to say, no, it's not that we don't like Muslims. It's just that this is against our values as a civilization. So it's against, again, it's against our civic values, our civic French values and things that we care about. And I suppose that, that, suppose that evokes one question which Daphne you raise which is this question of whether the demonization of these parties is legitimate or not and to what extent they have actually moved away from their kind of original very far right quite ethnic nationalist roots do you find that as parties move closer to power they really do move away from their roots and they do abandon their kind of extremist policies or is it all window dressing and actually they remain pretty radical in their in their actual policies and their aims 
Well, I think, I think that's a, that's a difficult question to answer because it's, you don't really know, right, what a party really believes. And another thing we need to remember is that a, a party has many, many members and, and many politicians involved. So what's interesting is that they actually tailor the rhetoric depending on, on who they're talking to and whether these are public or behind closed doors. So I think it's, it's very difficult to know whether they really are, whether they really believe what they are saying. But I think that definitely what we're seeing is that increasingly many parties imitate each other, many right-wing populist parties imitate each other, seeing that this is an attractive narrative. And in, in that respect, they do indeed try to, to silence or to eliminate some of the more extreme elements of their party. We saw that the Sweden Democrats did that as well. And and, and in France, that has happened. We even saw it a tiny bit with uh, the Golden Dawn, which, as I said, is a very extremist party. And when they were undergoing trial, even some of the members were trying to distance themselves um, from others. So ultimately, the issue is that once these parties become more popular, and if these parties also become members of coalition governments, they also do have to moderate their rhetoric. Otherwise, they're not going to survive in this political climate. But whether they really are more moderate, I think it's an impossible question to answer. Obviously, the FES is a left of centre political foundation. Clearly, the the objective includes combating the rise of right-wing populism. Part of, part of the reason for publishing this report is to understand it, to better be able to counter it. So what, do, what did you find left-wing progressives in Europe can do and what would be effective uh, in the fight against right-wing populism? So I can tell you what we should definitely not do um, to start with, which is we should definitely not try to imitate right-wing populists by becoming a right-wing populist. So I think there are a lot of studies that show this beyond ours, but essentially what we also found is that if you adopt their policies, essentially you increase the salience of their issue, they have ownership of that issue, and so they get the votes and, and you don't, uh, right? So it's not necessarily a winning strategy to try to imitate them. Now, what we did in the report is, is two things, really. So first, we looked at the electorates of right-wing populists themselves. And as I said earlier, we looked at the most likely voters, the kind of socio economic, socio-demographic characteristics that make people more likely to vote for a right-wing populist party. But then we also looked at the size of different voter groups, right? So we, we looked at the distribution of related concerns with immigration, both cultural and economic, and how they are distributed among the right-wing populist electorate. And then as a second step, we also looked at the center-left electorates, and we also looked at the distribution of the similar types of concerns among the center-left electorates. And what we found in some is first that indeed the, so the voter profile of these parties does vary across countries, but there are some similarities. People with cultural concerns over immigration, male individuals, very often rural dwellers, they are more likely to vote for right-wing populist parties. But indeed, if we look at the distribution of different concerns, we see that Actually, it is those with economic concerns or both types of concerns that are the majority of the electorate. So this means that there are actually a lot of people with economic concerns within the right wing uh, populist party electorates that could be drawn, could be taken by other parties. Then if you look at the center left electorates, we also see that they don't really have cultural concerns. 
So those with cultural concerns over immigration are, are almost non-existent. They're a real minority in the center-left electorates. And those people likely to vote for center-left parties, they tend to not have immigration concerns. So really, if the left becomes more populist or more right-wing populist, that means they will lose their own core voters. They're going to lose their voter base and only capture very few of the peripheral voters of right-wing populists. So I think given the examination of these electorates in our study, I think what might be a better strategy is to focus more on a narrative that the left already, as we say in political science, owns, right? On an issue that they have credibility and they have experience and they have reputation for competence. And that would focus on equality. And I think that's not necessarily, we're not talking just about only the lower strata, but we're talking about relative deprivation. We're talking about economic concerns that a broad range of social groups might have regarding equality. You mentioned a certain environmental concerns, you know, all these have an economic dimension. So I think the left would be better off to try and focus on that narrative instead of a narrative that it doesn't own and that it won't really get it much support. Marta, do you have any thoughts to add? Yeah, I think the French election, if anything, really showed that economic questions are still hugely important. And actually, for the first time, they topped the concerns of voters for Marine Le Pen. So while these voters usually care mostly about immigration, this time around, they were really worried about purchasing power. So it seems to me that there is an area that left-wing parties can actually focus on, as Daphne was saying, to try and actually win back voters that does not entail them sounding like radical right parties who feel strongly about cultural issues, but really where they can focus on issues of equality and broadly speaking, economic concerns that are what the left is traditionally about. And that makes it possible for them to avoid alienating their existing voters and potentially gain back something from uh, the radical right. Just to wrap up, we're speaking a few days before the second round of the election, which as listeners know, is going to pit centrist Macron against far-right Le Pen. But of course, for now the second election running, no left-wing candidate has managed to make it to the runoff round. And indeed, the traditionally dominant centre-left party, the Socialists, polled below 2%, which is a, a really catastrophic result. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on why the left did so badly and whether there is a way out of, of this apparent abyss. I wouldn't say that the left did badly in a sense that, yes, the traditional left in the shape of the Socialist Party took quite a hit. It basically disappeared from the political scene. However, Mélenchon did surprisingly well in the end. There was a moment where it almost looked like he might make it into the second round. So this does suggest that there is some interest for a left-wing offering in France. One of the problems here, of course, was that there were several candidates running on the left with slightly different programs. And that meant that it overall looked a little bit fractionalized. And although Mélenchon in the end managed to actually win quite a few votes from voters that thought that he was the best placed candidate on the left, he still fell short because there was no unified front. So presumably, if the French left could 
get together. And that is something that they are trying to do in uh, preparation for the so-called third round of the presidential election, which are the legislative elections this summer. They're trying to actually come together to some extent as a single political offering so that they can actually make a difference, at least in the parliament. Daphne and Marta, thanks very much for coming on this episode of France Elects. Thank you. Thank you. If you're enjoying France Elects, you might want to consider subscribing. We have a special offer for podcast listeners, 12 weeks for £12 or €12 in Europe. Just go to newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. And you can read all our international coverage at newstatesman.com slash international. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Songs are like tattoos, Mitchell said, on Blue. Having one written about you is immortality and fiction rolled into one. Featuring writing from our authors, including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover, Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election, and Sophie McBain on the refugee crisis. Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Mardwe screamed back, Who is dying? Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads wherever you get your podcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now, let's hear from Johanna Lutz, the director of the FES Vienna office, Democracy of the Future, about the FES itself and the work it does on right-wing populism. 
So FES or Friedrich Ebert Stiftung is a political foundation that Germany's first democratically elected president, Friedrich Ebert, set up upon his death in 1925. And the work of our political foundation focuses on the core ideas and values of social democracy. So we engage mainly in political education, we offer scholarship programs to young people, but also we do research and international corporations. With offices and programs in over 100 countries across the world, we support a dialogue on democracy and human rights. Can you talk about the work that the FES does on right-wing populism? First of all, we do research on right-wing populism in order to better understand it. We uh, want to know what makes right-wing populism so successful in so many countries across the world. And we want to see if there are any patterns to their success. However, we have found that the national trajectories of right-wing populists have been different in the different countries, even within Europe. But what we've also seen is that they often use similar strategies and tactics, especially once they're in power. So they often base their rhetoric on nationalism. Once they're in power, they capture the state and remodel its institutions, preferably the judiciary and the media, so that they can then rely on absolute loyalty and do not have to fear any checks and balances. And then we also see that they build a clientelistic network around them with mafia-like structure of substantial parts of the economy. And this is where the second and very important part of our FES work comes in. We try to find strategies against them and we cooperate with different civil society organizations, with trade unions and with progressive political parties to develop these strategies and to employ them. And then we come really to the third and most difficult part of our work is the result of our new research on right-wing populist parties in Europe shows that it's also crucial in the long term to address the root causes for right-wing populist success in these different societies, as we've just heard in the discussion. Our findings are based on the analysis of empirical and qualitative data on right-wing populist parties and their voters in 17 European countries. And our researchers found that the right-wing populist success beyond their co-voter base stems mainly from the fact that they managed to capitalize on the economic insecurities at the broader electorate with a nationalist and with a chauvinist social welfare policy agenda. And because we have also seen that trust in the political systems and in the way that democracy works is especially low among people who are in an economically weak or insecure situation. And we have seen this finding confirmed in many different European countries, UK, France, Germany. This is the very big challenge that remains to address these underlying causes of dissatisfaction with democracy, but especially also the dissatisfaction with left or centre-left parties. How does the right-wing and authoritarian populist challenge affect the work of political foundations such as the FES? Yeah, that would certainly differentiate between um, the right-wing uh, on the one hand and the authoritarian challenge, on the other hand. In authoritarian countries or countries that are strongly autocratizing, we have experienced some limitations to our work, just like other civil society organizations have, um, Amnesty International, for example. First, they give us administrative burdens or hurdles and make our work really difficult, or they can also just ostracize us from the country, basically, as we've just experienced in Russia 
But the success of right-wing populism, on the other hand, has really led us to address topics and encourage discussions about issues that we had already taken for granted, perhaps especially in Europe. So we've also had to adapt our instruments in Europe a bit and using more scholarship programs again. And we have facilitated exchange and networking and so on, because we've also learned that right-wing populists actually learn from one another, they copy strategies. So we try to connect the different progressive actors and facilitate their exchange of experiences so between NGOs and trade unions, political parties across different countries so that they can learn from one another how to cope with these situations. That's it for this special episode of France Selects, produced in partnership with the Friedrich Ebert Foundation. Many thanks to the FES for their support. I'll be back on Monday when we'll know who won the second round to digest the results and ask what's next for France. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thanks for listening and until next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.